Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Very beautiful. Thank you. I'll be singing that for the rest of the day. It's wonderful to be back, brethren. I have to say that uh, I miss you when I travel. Uh, this is a very nourishing congregation. You're good for the soul. And uh, as you know, my family and I were in the Middle East. That's the middle of East London. <laughs> and having been to the Middle East, I can tell you that uh, London is changing. Uh, the UK is changing, and uh, significantly. But on the way back, I, I like to read on the plane, and uh, that's a long haul. So I was sort of had enough of reading, and decided I'd watch a movie. And I went into the classic section, and I saw there Beauty and the Beast. So I thought I would watch that. And what is significant about that film for me was that. The beauty of Belle really was not evident fully until she collided with the beast. It was the collision of the beauty and the beast that showed us the beauty of Belle and the cowardice of everyone else. Let's begin today in Daniel 3 where we see another collision between the beauty and the beast. Daniel 3, and beginning in verse 12, There are certain Jews whom you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by name. These men, O king, have not regarded you. They serve not your gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. So this powerful king sent out an edict that everyone, upon the sound of the music, the call to prayer, will bow down and worship the image. And yet these three men were able to, in the face of this threat, existential threat, this is a threat that would take them out of existence, in the face of this threat, they stood courageous. And, and in this collision between the beauty and the beast, we see the beauty of these men. And thousands of years later, we are still inspired by their example. There were a lot of cowards at this time. There were a lot of cowards that bowed down to the image and worshipped the image. And we don't talk about them. We forget about them. We remember those who had courage in the face of danger. So Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're in trouble now. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said to them, Are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? Do you know what I can do to you? Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if you be ready... That at what time you hear the 
call to prayer, the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music. You fall down and worship the image which I have made. Very good. But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour, that very hour, into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. You know, the scripture tells us, be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. To those who will persecute us, to those who will want to put us to death, to be ready to give an answer with meekness and fear. They didn't get arrogant. They didn't become belligerent. They just said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not double-minded in this matter. We're not careful to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. These young Jewish men understood something of the promises that we were talking about in the youth study. They understood the faithfulness, the covenant faithfulness of God. And so they didn't have to be afraid of the beast. Our God will deliver us. But if not, if he chooses not to deliver us right now, it's just the same way that Abraham knew that God has to deliver Isaac because he's promised. But if I still go through and kill him, I know God is faithful. He'll find a way to resurrect Isaac and fulfill his promise. So you threaten me with my physical life. I'm not careful to answer you. I have a hope. And my hope is in the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh. He will perform his word. Killing me will not withhold God from fulfilling his promise. But if not, be it known unto you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, who are nothing, nor worship the image, the golden image which you have set up. And he commanded, notice this, brethren, he commanded that the most mighty men that were in his army, pick the strongest men in my army and bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood something which we have to understand. Nebuchadnezzar understood something which we have to understand. And this is it. Uh, History is everything. History gives us context. You can be intelligent, but if you don't have context, your intelligence means nothing. And that's the problem with our world today. It's not that we don't have intelligent people. It's that they don't have context. And so they take their intelligence and they misapply it. With context, then your intelligence can actually mean something. The context is this. God made a promise to Abraham. Satan hates that promise. Therefore, Satan is doing all he can A, to deceive people with a counter-promise, and B, to destroy the descendants of Abraham so that God's promise cannot be fulfilled. 
So we have two forces acting on our world. One force is it comes from those who believe in the promise of Abraham. The other force comes from those who believe in Nebuchadnezzar and his false religion. The false religion is a religion of force. The true religion is a religion of grace. It's a promise of the Almighty. And we abide in, in that promise in grace. Satan has no grace. Satan has power. He has force. And he will force compliance to have his worshipers worship him. And so Nebuchadnezzar, a son, a descendant in the lineage of Nimrod, uses his mighty men. That's what Nimrod does. Nimrod was a mighty hunter. And so might is right, according to the Nimrod religion. According to the Abraham religion, truth is right. It doesn't matter how much strength you have, the truth still stands. There's nothing you can do to make the truth fall. But to Nimrod, it's all about might. These men were not afraid of might. And although there were many cowardly Jews who worshipped Nimrod through Nebuchadnezzar's image, these men did not. And their beauty shone in this conflict between Nebuchadnezzar and the true religion. I want to remind us today, brethren, that just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we are on a collision course with the beast. And when we collide... That is our opportunity to show the beauty of Christ. That is our opportunity to be ready to give an answer with meekness and fear for the hope that lies within us. But we have to be building courage. Whatever virtues you have, and think about your personality, think about your character. We all have characteristics, we all have attributes that are noble, that people would look up to us and say, wow, I wish I could be more like that. Whatever attributes we have, whatever positive characteristics we have, without courage, they fail. If you don't have courage, you've got nothing. Courage comes from faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. This is why God's word says that the fearful will be cast into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. If we are fearful, God has no use for us. We cannot be fearful and faithful at the same time. It's one or the other. So when we confront the beast, we have a choice to be fearful or to be faithful. We want to understand today how can we be faithful when the most mighty men come against us to force us to worship a false god? Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6. Let's go where Landon was in the scripture reading. <clears throat> because the Hebrews... We're on the verge 
of being destroyed. And they were on the verge of fearfulness and giving up. But they were encouraged not to do that. And let's look at that encouragement. Hebrews 6 and verse 11. And we desire, it's our hope, that every single one of you, every one of you, do show the same diligence. We were covering that before that. With all diligence, with all diligence, giving all diligence, we're going to add to our faith excellence, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly love, agape. With all diligence, we're going to add to our faith. So we desire that every one of you should show the same diligence to full assurance of hope to the end, never floundering. From now, right up to the end, full assurance, never once floundering, never once fearful, full assurance. We're just absolutely confident right up to the end, no matter what. That's the desire. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith, not fear, in perfect love casts out fear. We have nothing to fear except God. Let's be followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So how can we do that? How can we be followers of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And the other faithful men and women who had that full assurance no matter what thing, what, whatever happened on the outside, they didn't budge. How can we be like that? It tells us. Verse 13, for when God made promise to Abraham, this is where it all begins. This, this is where the true religion on earth really begins as God begins to act now, beginning with Abraham. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. That word epi, uh, that's translated when, better translated after can be when or after. In the context, it's after. For after God made promise to Abraham. He's already made the promise to Abraham. Now, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself on top of the promise, saying, surely, Abraham, in blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after Abraham patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So he went through what he had to go through, never floundering, believing in God's faithfulness, and he obtained the promise. Look, men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. So when somebody makes an oath, that's it. That's the end of it. No more discussion. This is now an oath. It's going to be carried out. This is where our faith comes from. We are the children of Abraham, and we do the works of Abraham. And Abraham's righteousness begins in his belief in God's promise. But not just the promise, because after the promise, God then swore an oath. So he has two things, the promise, and on top of the promise, the oath, because after he made the promise, he then swore an oath. 
wherein God, so, so because an oath is confirmation, and it's the end of all strife, within that context, God, willing more abundantly, he really wanted to do this. What did he want to do? To show unto the heirs of promise, that's us, by extent. Let's, let's not jump too quickly here, because we can just read this and say, oh, we're heirs of promise. How are we heirs of promise? The heirs of the promise are the children of Abraham. The Old Testament concludes with Israel being scattered and lost and Judah being unfaithful, but still in the land. And God saying, because I don't change, you children will not be destroyed. So I'm going to fulfill my promise because I don't change, even though you've been unfaithful. Because there's a promise to Abraham that is unconditional. And they've inherited that promise. It came through Isaac. It came through Jacob. It came through Judah. And so the promise is to them. By extension, if we are Gentile Christians, we are children of Abraham. We are grafted into Israel. And so we are heirs of Abraham. So we are heirs of the very same promise that the physical children of Abraham are going to inherit. And the promise is land. We're not going to heaven. I hope you're not disappointed. God didn't promise heaven. He's not going to promise land and then give us heaven. He's promised land to Abraham, to Abraham's seed. And those who believe in Christ are grafted into Abraham's seed. So, Christian and Jew alike are the children of Abraham and heirs of the promise. So, God, really, really, really wanting to show the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchangeableness of his purpose. God has a purpose it will not change. It's unconditional promise. No matter what happens... God will not change this purpose. Really wanting to show us, well, the Jews and the Christians who become children of Israel, God really wanting us to understand this. What did he do? To show us the immutability of his purpose, he confirms the promise by an oath. So he made a promise to Abraham. And then to really make sure that we would all be able to stand in faith. Because, brethren, this is the situation. If you're a child of Abraham, Satan's purpose is to destroy you. I wish I could say it differently. If you are a child of Abraham, remember when Christ was born, there was an edict that was sent out to destroy all the children two years old and under. Because Satan is trying to frustrate God's purpose. God wants us to know his purpose is immutable. It cannot change. He will do exactly what he says he will do. So God really wanting us to understand this by two immutable things. So his counsel is immutable. His purpose is immutable. His purpose will not change. He really wants us to know this because we must stand by faith, not by fear. 
Our faith is in the word of God. So by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. What are these two immutable things? Because it's impossible for God to lie, we have two immutable things. If God cannot lie, then the promise cannot be broken. If God cannot lie, then the oath which sits on top of the promise cannot be broken. These are the two immutable things. This is what we must have faith in. This is why we can stand in front of the beast and say, do your worst. I'll be back. And I'll be back with my Savior. Because it's immutable. He is going to do what he promised. So in these, two, in, in these immutable things, we might have strong consolation. Satan hates us. He wants to destroy us. But we have strong consolation. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. Let's just quickly look at the promise, brethren. Genesis 15. Genesis 15, because this promise is why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't, wouldn't bow and couldn't be broken, because they were Jews who understood this promise. Genesis 15. And he said unto him, verse 7, I am the Lord that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give this land to inherit it. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in Babylon, facing Nebuchadnezzar, threatened with being burnt to death. And they're like, we're going to inherit this land. We are going to walk on this land with our Savior, with our Messiah, and we're going to rule the world from this land. So you might be the ruler today. You're not the ruler tomorrow. We are. With Abraham, with Christ. So he promised he's going to give him the land. Verse 9. And he said to him, Take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And he took him all these and divided them in the middle. And laid each piece one against the other. So he made an aisle. He took these animals and he split them. And he made an aisle. The birds he didn't divide. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, basically Abraham went into a coma. So this, this, is, this is a way of us making a covenant. We're going to split these animals in two. We're going to make an aisle. And then we're both going to walk down the aisle. And if either one of us break the covenant, then may our fate be like these animals. In the middle of doing this covenant, God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And he walks down the aisle. Saying, I covenant with you. I'm going to give you this land. You don't have to do anything. This is all on me. I will not break my word. So this is the strong promise that we have. Verse 18. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto your seed have I given this land. This is the covenant. It's a covenant of real estate. It's a covenant of real estate. You know, when I, when I hear ISIS, Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, 
Are you kidding me? Or ISIL, Islamic State in the Levant. Are you out of your mind? That land was promised to Abraham. You're an invader. You're an imposter. You need to get out of that land. Because God has made a promise. And he's bound by a covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham saying, Unto your descendants I've given this land. I promise you. From the river of Egypt right up to the river, the great river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadmonites, all of this land in the Middle East, which is most of Iraq and Syria. There's a bit of Iraq that's not covered because it's past the Euphrates. This is Abraham's. And those who are Abraham's by covenant. So that's the promise. Unconditional. Abraham didn't have to do anything. Let's go to chapter 22. And verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God tempted Abraham, tested him, and said to Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac. I've given you the promise. This is your only son. Take him, whom you love, and get you into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering. Upon one of the mountains which I fell. And we know that Abraham was faithful. He believed in God's promise. Even though he didn't understand, he didn't fear. He did what he was told. Verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn. He's already promised. Now, because of what Abraham did, God is beside himself with joy. God is certainly going to fulfill this promise. And so now he confirms it with an oath. By myself have I sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, that in blessing I will bless you, what Hebrews was quoting, and in multiplying I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the sea shore. So the seed is going, of Abraham is going to be multiplied. And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God cannot lie. His purpose cannot change. No one can change it. Nobody is stronger than God to say, I, I, I forbid it. This is God's purpose. In fact, this land that God is promising to Abraham, God the Father himself is going to come down from heaven and dwell in this land. And this land will become the headquarters for the entire universe. His counsel is immutable. No one can stop it. So it doesn't matter, brethren, who the guy thinks he is. Whether it's a pharaoh, whether it's a king of Assyria, Ashurbanipal or Sennacherib, whether it's a Babylonian ruler, emperor, whether it's somebody from the Persian Empire, whether it's somebody from the Greco-Macedonian Empire, it, it just doesn't matter. No one can, can frustrate this purpose. This land 
will be given to Abraham's seed, to Abraham and his seed. Now, Abraham's seed must face the beast. And depending on what time we live in, we will face different iterations of this Nimrod religion, this Nimrod strongman bully religion, political religion. A couple of years ago, I had the chance to talk to a magician. And I asked him, how do you do magic? And he actually explained to me that it is sleight of hand, but the power of magic is in the narrative. The power of magic is in the story that the magician tells you. Because the way the brain works, this is what he explained to me, the way the brain works is we are constantly filtering in and filtering out information. In fact, the filtering out of information is critical to our sanity. There is so much stimuli all around us that the brain learns to ignore most of it and only pay attention to what matters. So the magician gives us a narrative. And based on the strength of that narrative, we begin to pay attention to certain things. So he said to me, while he's giving the narrative, he may drop a handkerchief. And while he's talking, he'll just pick that up. But to our brains watching, because that has nothing to do with the story that he's telling us, our brain fil- we didn't even see it. Our brain filters it out. Meanwhile, he says, that was the trick that's coming up. So by the time he gets to the trick that's coming up, we've completely forgotten the incident that happened before. I don't know if you've seen this video on YouTube where there's two basketball teams. Have you seen this? And they pass the ball back and forth to each other. So five on one team, five on another. And so they come in and they're passing the basketball. Has anybody seen this? Yes. Good. Should I spoil it for the rest? Okay. Andrew says I can. <laughs> so there, there's five people. They're passing the basketball back and forth. Your job is to count how many times they pass the basketball. And I forget the number, it's around 30, maybe 25 or 30. So you've got to count, because they're very tricky and they move the ball very quickly. And so you're counting, you're counting, you're counting. And then at the end of the video it says, so how many times? Did you see it 20 times? Did you see it 25 times? And then they give you the actual number. And so people say, yeah, I got that number. Most people don't get it. After all of that is said and done, they then ask the question, did you see the gorilla doing the moonwalk? Nobody saw it. So right in the midst of these basketball players, you watch the video again, and you see this gorilla come out and do a moonwalk across the stage. And you're like, no way. That's impossible. But that's the way the brain works. We're following a particular path. We filter everything else out, and something is happening right under our nose, and we don't see it. Daniel 2. We have a narrative so that we don't miss what others miss. But we have to be careful that we take the narrative for what it says, not for what we think it says. Daniel 2, beginning in verse 27, Daniel, a captive in Babylon, has a relationship with Nebuchadnezzar where he's going to tell Nebuchadnezzar what this 
phenomenal dream is that he dreamed and what it, what it meant. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the, God, which the king has demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, soothsayers show the king, but there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be when in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed are these. As for you, O king, your thoughts came into your mind upon your bed. What should come to pass hereafter? So, so it's not before. He's not talking about what happened before. King Nebuchadnezzar is the focal point. And this vision is being given to him from his perspective. From your perspective, here's what's going to happen from this point forward. And he that reveals secrets and makes known to you what shall come to pass. But as for me, the secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, that you might know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, saw and behold a great image. So this is a, a phenomenal, glorious image from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. God is going to show Daniel the same vision from a godly perspective. But from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, this is a glorious image. This great image whose brightness was excellent stood before you. And the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, and his feet part of iron, part of clay. You saw till that, till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon its feet that were of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together. So everything came crumbling down, and everything became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away. And no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain. So we get completely get rid of that image, and now there's a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. The promise to Abraham is that the whole earth will be blessed in you. This stone comes on the land that was promised to Abraham, and it governs the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. So we know from the scripture that Babylon is the head. We know from the scripture that the Medo-Persian Empire comes next. And this is key to this image. It is given to Nebuchadnezzar. It's from his perspective. He doesn't care about Egypt. He doesn't care about Assyria. That's behind him. He cares about his empire. From his perspective, he is told, you are governing this empire now. The Medes and Persians are going to replace you. They're going to knock you out. 
and they're going to govern the empire that you are now governing. I think Brother Daniel actually asked the question, why is the Persian king called the king of Babylon? Because it's prophetic. You must rule over Babylon to be part of this image. So the Medo-Persians come and they rule over Babylon. The Greco-Macedonians will come next, Alexander the Great, and they will conquer Babylon. And then there's a fourth kingdom. The scripture doesn't name the kingdom. But we do. We do. We say, oh, the fourth kingdom of iron. That's the Roman Empire. That's the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, it's got two legs, yes. There's the Western Empire and there's the Eastern Empire. So we tell ourselves what the fourth beast is. The scripture doesn't say that. You can't find Rome in the scripture. What if we are stuck in a paradigm that's telling us that the fourth beast is this Roman Empire? Meanwhile, because that's the narrative, Satan is up to a trick, and there's a gorilla doing the moonwalk under our noses. And we're not, it's right under our nose, and we're not noticing. Because we're waiting for this Roman Empire. Germany, look out, Germany's gonna rise up. There are 800,000 migrants walking to Germany from Iraq and Syria. I mean, I looked at the map. And right beside Iraq is Saudi Arabia. So if you're a Muslim and you're in trouble and Saudi Arabia is a Muslim empire and really, really wealthy, why wouldn't you just go next door? Why, are you, why must you go to Germany? I mean, if you look at a map, this is preposterous. And the UK, you must go to Germany and you must go to the UK. Saudi Arabia is saying, we can't help you. Well, we can. We we will help you. We will build 200 mosques in Germany. So you can't come in our country. Go to Germany. Go to Europe. And we'll build 200 mosques there. And in February, ISIS said... We will send jihadists into Europe through a mass migration. If you're waiting for Germany to rise, keep waiting. Germany is over. Angela Merkel herself said, this will change Germany forever. Europe, it's over. The UK, over. Game over. They don't know what they're dealing with. We had a uh, niece getting married. We were there uh, for this marriage, wedding. In two weeks, we have another niece getting married. And we told her, we can't, we can't come. Number one, it's during the feast. But even if it wasn't, it's so close together. But the one that's getting married at the end of the month, she was to get married a year ago. But her husband-to-be is from Sierra Leone. There was an outbreak of Ebola. So they could not travel from Sierra Leone Leone to the UK until it was proven 
that there are no new cases of Ebola. And only then would the UK open their doors. And even when he came, he had to be tested before they let him in. Meanwhile, we've got people with this virus called Islam running around in their psyche. And we're saying, we've got to help you. Oh, we see, we see mothers carrying babies. We've got to help them in. What about all the young men? We're just letting them all come in. It's nice to be nice. Why can't Saudi Arabia be nice? Why are they all going to Europe? If you love Islam, and this is an Islamic country, wouldn't your heart say, I've got to be an Islamic country? Why do you have to be in an infidel country when you love Islam? I would say, yeah, we want to help you. We're happy to help you. But we have to test you to make sure you don't have the virus. And you've got to show us that if we say sexual slavery, beheading, terrorist attacks, criminal activity, that you detest all these things, come on in. But if you show any signs that you like these things, get out of our country. We we can't do this. I'm going to show you, brethren, the case that the beast we have to face is Islam. That Islam is the greatest existential threat the world has ever faced. Not Muslims. Islam. There's a difference. The Muslim culture, the uh, the, uh, Middle Eastern culture, these are beautiful people. All of them would be Christians if it were not for this virus that took off and has basically spoiled the Middle East. They're all dying to get out and come to the West. Verse 41. And whereas you saw the feet and toes, part of parter's clay, part of iron. And so we see these legs right from the beginning. I should mention the Roman Empire. The West went from about 300 B.C. to 426 A.D., 476 A.D., and it collapsed. The East didn't collapse until 1453 A.D. So, and in fact, they didn't start at the same time and they didn't end at the same time. So that image that we see has two legs. Most of the time it's doing this, if you think it's the Roman Empire. Because those two legs, they stood together for about, what, 200 years. The rest of the time, there's only one leg. Compare that to Islam, where right from the get-go, it's split. Shia, Sunni. And, and they hate each other and they'll never combine. And it's always been that way. Now we come to the toes. Mix of miry clay and iron. So it's got the strength of iron, but it can't quite take. And we know the scripture says that Ishmael is a wild man fighting everybody. But what's interesting is this word mixed, if you look it up in Strong's, it's Aramaic. And it says Arab. That the toes will be Arabized. And the Hebrews use this word to refer to the desert people. Because Esau mixed with the desert people. And so they were seen as the mixed people. And so the toe now, or the feet, are Arabized. Daniel 7. Now Daniel is given the exact same revelation. 
but this time from the perspective of a godly man, not a pagan man. To the pagan man, this is glorious, so this is wonderful. To the godly man, this is Satan. This is Nimrod. This is destruction. So Daniel gets the same revelation. Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea, so all the peoples, and four great beasts came up from the sea. So these are the Gentile nations, diverse, different from one another. The first was like a lion, this is Babylon, and had eagle's wings. And I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man. So Nebuchadnezzar had this experience where he was given a man's heart, and a man's heart was given to him. And behold, and he was also given the the, the revelation, the dream. And behold, another beast, a second like a bear, and it raised itself up on one side. So this is the Medo-Persian, where the Persian side would be stronger than the Medes. And it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. And so that's what these beasts do. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, now this is Alexander the Great, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, Dreadful and terrible. This is a time of trouble like no other. And strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth. Very powerful. It devoured and broke in pieces. And not only that, when it was finished doing that, it stamped the residue with its feet, with the feet of it. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. So this this beast is a destroyer like no other. It completely destroys. And after it's destroyed, it comes back and it destroys what's left. This would never describe the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was powerful. But the Roman Empire was a tax collection system. That's why we talk about the Roman, the Pax Romana where they set up all this infrastructure. Anybody that they conquered, they put infrastructure in place so that money could get back to Rome. All roads lead to Rome. So actually, Rome was constructive. It's only if you went against them and you didn't honor the emperor, then they would come and destroy you. But Rome was not thorough. When it conquered Greece, it adopted Greek language. It adopted Greek culture. It adopted the Greek gods. That's not destroying thoroughly. In fact, Christianity overtook Rome. It adopted the Christian religion. This beast doesn't do that. When it goes in, it completely destroys. Propose to you, think about Islam. Think about the Ottoman Empire. Look at ISIS today. Just uh, last week in the news, Palmyra. So they're not happy going in and destroying people. But then they want to destroy everything, all the evidence of the archaeology that supports the Bible. They want to destroy all of that. When they go in, they don't want to accept people's culture. This is about Arab supremacy. 
Now everybody speaks, everybody in Pakistan, they have to speak uh, uh, Arabic. You can't worship this God unless you speak Arabic. Even if you don't know what you're saying, too bad. So they go in and they thoroughly destroy. Verse 8. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. So this is a bully religion. This is Nimrod religion. So we can expect, so there's a strong man, uh, uh, al-Baghdadi, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. This is saying, don't get caught up with the personality. Because a stronger personality can come and bump him off. And so when the Antichrist and Islam is Antichrist, Islam is designed to destroy Christianity and to destroy belief in the divinity of Christ. It is Antichrist. When the Antichrist comes, we expect him, he's going to knock off the representatives before him. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things or great blasphemies. I beheld till all the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit. Whose, you cannot frustrate God's purpose. So no matter what happens, brethren, we know that God is going to fulfill his purpose. And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, his wheels as a burning fire. Compare this to Revelation 13. Let's go to Revelation 13. So as you're reading Revelation 13, or as we read this together, remember this, brethren. Remember uh, Brother Jan's sermon uh, a couple of weeks ago where he showed us the map of Paul's journeys and how from Jerusalem to all Judea to Samaria to all over the Middle East, Christianity was spread. Egypt was a strong Christian nation. It was a center. Alexandria was a center of Christianity. Antioch was a center of Christianity. Well, that map really struck me because today all those nations are Muslim. They were bullied into Islam. Bullied into submission. Islam means submission. So these nations all around Jerusalem, they would all be reading the Bible a little over 1,400 years ago. Today, they're all reading the Koran. The Koran has a very different eschatology than the Bible. In fact, it's the exact opposite of the Bible. So what we read here in Revelation 13 Islam's eschatology is the opposite. I'll show you what I mean. And I stood, verse 1, upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his, heads, upon his horn ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and great authority." And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. So we believe this is the Ottoman Empire. Islam was destroyed. This whole Islamic, I shouldn't say Islam, but the political power was destroyed in the 1920s. I think it was 1928 when the Turkish ruler gave up the Islamic Empire. So it was wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed. That's where we are now. 
this empire is being healed, it's coming back. And all the world wondered after the beast. So we call it the beast. We are wondering after it. The Islamic eschatology calls this the Mahdi. The Mahdi is coming. And the whole world will wonder after the Mahdi. The whole world will be in love with the Mahdi. And it says, who is able to make war with him? Islamic eschatology says the Mahdi will come and he will make war with the whole world and force the world into submission. Who can make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. So their blasphemies are to deny Christ and the Father. They say that we are doing the most blasphemous thing ever, which is to say that Christ is divine. That, that is the worst sin that anybody, it's worse than any other sin to say that Christ is divine. And we must be put to death for that. So there's this contradiction. And power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. He hates the promise to Abraham. And it was given unto him, brethren, to make war with the saints. Islam is all about destroying the Jews and the Christians. The Mahdi, when he comes, so the Mahdi is going to come, and Christ is going to come, a false Christ. And Christ, his purpose when he comes, is to convert Christians to Islam. And the Mahdi, when he comes, it's to destroy all the Jews. He's to go into Jerusalem and destroy all the Jews. And then once he's destroyed the Jews, to then destroy Christians. This is their eschatology. It was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome us. Beauty and the beast. When he overcomes us, we don't fear. And we don't bow. Because we believe in the immutable purpose of God. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So what doctrine is it that is spreading all over the world? That we're sending migrants everywhere. We're sending representatives everywhere. And it's like a virus. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. So if you're waiting for Germany... Uh, I don't know what you're waiting for, but there's some doctrine here which is religious in nature, but, po- but has political backing, and they're warmongers. They love war, and they will force people into submission. And there's some antichrist, which they call the Mahdi, that's driving this. He that leads into captivity, so these are people that are taking people into captivity, he shall go into captivity. You cannot frustrate the word of God. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. So there's some force that is sword happy, loves to behead people. They have it on their flag. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. We have to get through this. And we get through it because of the immutable purpose of God. That there is a promise made, and we know God cannot lie. And on top of the promise, there's an oath. We have two immutable things. 
And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke as a dragon. Beware of false Christs. This is their Isa. This is their Christ. He, he looks like Christ. He's, he's supposed to be Christ, but he speaks like a dragon. The words of the devil come out of his mouth. I'll just go on, but there's another, there's another player. So they have the Mahdi, which we call the Antichrist. They have a false Christ, which here is the false prophet. And then they have the Dajjal. The Dajjal. And they are constantly warning their members, their community, the Ummah, about the Dajjal. When the Dajjal comes... He's going to try to convert Muslims to Christianity. And they're warning the Ummah, don't fall for the Dajjal. So their eschatology is the exact counterpart to ours. And all these nations that surround Jerusalem, that would have been reading the book of Revelation, reading Daniel in the end time to say, this is when the books of Daniel will be opened. Instead of reading these texts, they're reading the Quran and the Hadith and learning to fight Christ when he comes and follow the Mahdi and the false Christ when he comes. From Joel Richardson has a book called The Islamic Antichrist. From page 25, he says this, The Mahdi is believed to be a future Muslim world leader who will not only rule over the Islamic world, but the non-Muslim world as well. The Mahdi is said to lead a world revolution that will establish a new Islamic world order throughout the entire earth. The Hadith says, Allah will sow the love of him in the hearts of all people. Who can make war with him? They'll love him. Everyone only talks about him, drinks the love of him, and never talks about anything other than him. The Mahdi's ascendancy to power is said to be preceded by an army from the east carrying black flags and banners of war. So this is why ISIS flags are black, because they're trying to fulfill their eschatology. Muhammad said, armies carrying black flags will come from Khurasan. No power will be able to stop them. Who can make war with the beast? And they will finally reach Jerusalem where they will erect their flags. It's really important to Muslims that they take over Jerusalem. And the Mahdi must reign from Jerusalem. So these armies must surround Jerusalem. We know that when armies surround Jerusalem, its desolation is coming. Interestingly enough, this is... a. Oh, sorry. The prophet said, the last hour will not come unless the Muslims will fight against the Jews. And the Muslims will kill them until the Jews will hide themselves behind a stone or a tree. And that stone or tree will say, oh, Muslim or the servant of Allah, there is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. Why focus on the Jew? Because God has a promise to the Jew. God has a promise to give land to the descendants of Abraham and to us by extension. We who are Christians are grafted, sorry, Gentile Christians 
are grafted into Israel. So we inherit the land with the Jew. Satan must eliminate the Jews. That's why Christ in Matthew 24, let's quickly go there. Matthew 24, Christ warned us or warned the Jews. Christ was a Jew talking to Jews. Verse 11, many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. He's telling us, he's telling us beforehand. We see that uh, because iniquity shall abound, the beauty will go out of God's people. The love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure with the promise made to Abraham unto the end, the same shall be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all Gentile nations. And then shall the end come. So we are not afraid. The Gentiles must hear this gospel. We need to save people from this darkness that they're involved in by preaching the true gospel. When you therefore, verse 15, shall see the abomination of desolation. So there's some abomination of desolation. We saw um, Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Yeah, we saw a type of that with Antiochus Epiphanes, but there's one coming, coming ahead, where there's going to be an abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. When that's in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. The reason Muslims must go to Jerusalem is their prophet, when he was in Mecca, got on a flying donkey that took him to Jerusalem. Don't you know? And when he landed in Jerusalem, he was then transported to heaven from Jerusalem. On the way down, he met Moses. And Moses asked him, how many prayers did Allah give you? And he said, 50. He said, that's too many. The people won't be able to do that. Go back. So this went back and forth, 40, 30, 20. And he finally got it to five. And Moses said, you need to go back. And Muhammad was too embarrassed to go back. So he came down with five prayers a day. So, so Jerusalem is the most holy place or the third most holy place to Muslims and that's why they must have Jerusalem and that's why the Mahdi must rule from Jerusalem. So when this happens, let those Jews, the Christ is a Jew talking to Jews, let those Jews which are in Judea run for your life. Now, unfortunately, most Jews don't listen to Christ. So they're not going to go anywhere. They're going to try to fight for their land. Christ is saying, run for your life. This is the desolation of Jerusalem. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return. This is serious. Run for your life. Don't look back. Get out of there. And if you have a child... And you're giving suck in those days, I'm sorry for you. Because this beast is merciless. This beast has to destroy every Jew. That's their mission. For then shall be great tribulation, verse 21, such as what was not since the beginning of the world to this time. This is an existential threat that we've never seen the like and we'll never see it again. And except those days should be shortened, there'd be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake... They shall be shortened. So if any man says to you, here is Christ or there, don't believe it. 
don't believe it. So there, Christ is going to show up and, and with hidden scriptures. He's going to come with scriptures that have been lost to show us that Islam is the way. No. Behold, verse 25, I've told you beforehand. Now, as we shift now to the promise. Jews and Christians are facing the biggest existential threat ever. There's never been anything like this. It'll only happen once, three and a half years, and then it will never happen again. How do we know it will never happen again? Let's go to Zechariah 12. His purpose is immutable. It doesn't matter how big a bully you are. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how fast your religion is growing. It doesn't matter how many converts you have worldwide. God's counsel, his purpose, is immutable. It cannot be changed. Zechariah 12 and verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, says the Lord, which stretches forth the heavens and lays the foundation of earth. In other words, this is the true God. This is the true God. And forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, all the countries that surround Jerusalem today are Muslim. Their eschatology says that black flags, armies with black flags are coming to Jerusalem. So what armies are we looking for? Egypt, Somalia, Ethiopia. Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, all these nations are Muslim nations and they all surround Jerusalem. And Christ is saying, when you see these armies, if you're a Jew in Jerusalem, run for your life. I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. When they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. Though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it, you cannot frustrate God's purpose. You come to destroy all the Jews in Jerusalem? Sorry, not going to happen. In that day, says the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment. And his rider with madness. And I will open my eyes upon the house of Judah. And I will smite every horse of the people with blindness. You cannot fight against Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah. God is coming to sit on the throne. That's another covenant promise to David. That Jesus will sit on the throne of David. So you cannot eliminate the Jewish line. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. He is the God of Israel. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf. And they shall devour all the people round about. So all these armies are coming around Jerusalem to devour Jerusalem. God's word says the Jews shall devour all the people round about. 
on the right hand and on the left, and Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. So they're coming to take the people captive, to destroy the people, to ship them off into slavery, into captivity. And God is saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first. His immutable counsel. That the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among the Jews at that day shall be as David. When God comes and backs them up, they will withstand these forces. And the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them, when the Messiah comes. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all those nations that came against Jerusalem. Who are they? All those nations that come with their black flags against Jerusalem, I, God, will personally destroy them. How dare you? Working for Satan, trying to destroy my purpose. And I will pour, verse 10, and I will pour upon the house of David, the Jews, and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the Jews, the spirit of grace and of supplications. We read it today in Malachi, how the Old Testament ends. God says, because I am God and I don't change, you sons of Jacob will not be destroyed. You deserve to be destroyed. You're evil. You are fully evil. But I've made an unconditional promise to your father. And because I don't change, you will not be destroyed. And we see this here. The spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him. This is the repentance of Judah now. The Jews will acknowledge Christ. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Look now at chapter 14. Zechariah 14. Verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. It's coming. And your spoil shall be divided in the midst of you. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Why would they want to fight Jerusalem? There's there's some ideology that they have in their head that says we must destroy the Jews. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken... When you, when you see these armies surrounding Jerusalem, run for your life. Because the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women raped. And half the city shall go into captivity. These are slaver, slavers. So people are going to go into slavery. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So they can't get them all out. So which nations... Let's see, Libya, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, Somalia, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Turkey. They all surround Jerusalem. They're all Muslim. They're all reading the Koran, which says, The believers will win. 
through those who humble themselves with their prayers, who avoid vain talk, who are active in deeds of charity, who abstain from sex, except with those they're married to, or anybody that they take captive. You're allowed to rape them. So all these nations that surround Jerusalem have a doctrine that they must fight the Jews, they must destroy the Jews, they can take the women captive, and they can rape the women. That's what the Quran teaches them. They also have Muhammad's example, which is exactly what he did. Verse 3. So, this doctrine will cause them to do this. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. We need to warn them. Don't get caught up in this, because you're against God. He'll fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, right in Jerusalem, which is before Jerusalem on the east and on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and the west. Let's drop down to verse 9. The Lord shall be king over all the earth from the land that he promised to Abraham. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. Verse 11. Men shall dwell in it, despite all the war, all that bloodshed and carnage, men will dwell in Jerusalem. And there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited by the Jew, because of God's promise to Abraham. And this, verse 12, shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. So all those nations that surround Jerusalem, all Muslim nations, that all have the doctrine that they must fight against Jerusalem. God says, this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their sockets. And their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. I wouldn't fight against the Jews if I were you. I wouldn't fight against God's promise if I were you. But they want to eliminate every Jew. Oh, Muslim, there's a Jew hiding behind me. Come and kill him. They're going to be ravenous. They're going to be beside themselves with bloodthirst for the Jew and then for the Christian. And God says, this is what I'm going to do when I come to protect my seed, my promise. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them. And they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. So complete confusion. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance, and given to Judah because of the promise to Abraham. And so shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, of the ass, of the beasts that shall be in the tents is this plague. And it shall come to pass that of everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem with this ideology, of all those that, are, that survive all of this when they fight against Jerusalem and then God fights for the Jews, those that are left shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles they will have to admit that God is the God of Judah. God is the God of Israel. They're going to have to swallow their pride and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. 
and understand what all these holy days mean? What if they don't? And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt, which is Muslim, go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague on top of the rain, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day shall there be upon the bells of horses holiness unto the Lord Jesus. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto Jesus, the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein. And in that day there shall be no more Canaanites in the house of the Lord of hosts. So the Palestinians will be successful. They are mixed with the Canaanites. And Hamas will be successful and they will go into Jerusalem. But when the Lord comes, uh, 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 the only way you can be in Jerusalem is to come into the church, come into Israel. You're either Israel or you're nothing. Quickly look at Zechariah 8. Verse 1, again the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy when I saw what they were doing, and I was jealous for her with great fury. Thus says the Lord, I am returned unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth and the mountain of the Lord's of hosts, the holy mountain. They will acknowledge that God is the God of Judah. Jesus is a Jew and they'll acknowledge this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the sweet streets of Jerusalem and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. It's going to be ugly for a while, but then this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. And I will bring them and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Isaiah 14. We're almost finished. Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, verse 1. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob. Yes, Jacob is evil. Yes, the Jews deny Christ. But God has a promise that is immutable. And so the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land. And the strangers shall be joined with them and they shall cleave unto the house of Jacob. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And the people shall take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of their Lord, the land that was promised to Abraham for servants and handmaids. So these Muslims who fight against Jew, the Jews will be serving the Jew. And they shall take them captives whose captives they were. And they shall rule over their oppressors. 
And it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord shall give you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and from the hard bondage wherein you were made to serve. It's going to be very hard because there's a hatred there. That you shall take up this proverb against the king of Babylon, Iraq, and say, remember the beast, the, the beast always governs from Babylon. And say, how has the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased? The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger, the Antichrist, is persecuted and none helps him. Chapter 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you, Judah. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, the gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall rise upon you, Judah, and his glory shall be seen upon you. And the Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So this, brethren, is what Paul means in Romans when he says, If the casting away of the Jew be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? God has a promise to Abraham. Abraham has descendants. God is going to fulfill that promise to his descendants. Blindness, in part, has happened to Israel. So God has blinded part of Israel. And he's inviting the Gentiles to come in to be part of this first fruits. We are going to inherit the land, not because we're the church. It's really important that we get this. We're going to inherit the land because we are Abraham's seed. It is our faith in Christ, regardless of whether we are Jew or Gentile, that makes us Abraham's seed. And the promise to Abraham is immutable. We will have the land. Blindness has happened in part to Israel while God is inviting some Gentiles in. While the Gentiles come in, they're blinded. God will lift the blindness and they will worship their Lord, whom they have pierced. When they come in to the church, if their blindness is such a blessing, what will it mean when they come in and now God fulfills his promise and God comes from earth, uh, from heaven to dwell on earth in the land that he promised all these people? This is the mystery. And we must be careful not to speak against the covenant people. They're blinded for our sake. There's a mercy that's happening in all over the world while the Jew is blinded. But let's not boast against the root. The root bears us. We don't bear the root. Let us conclude, brethren, in Daniel 12. I think we're all familiar with um, Revelation 20, which says that we saw the souls of those who were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. There is some ideology on the earth that if you say Jesus, they'll behead you. And if you stand your ground, you will reign with Christ. But Daniel 12. We need to study Daniel. Daniel will be opened up in the end time. This is the end time. We need to understand this book.
Daniel 12. And at that time, this, this time of great turmoil in Jerusalem, shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of your people, speaking to the Jews. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. We just read that in Zechariah. Every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. If they had courage, they will awake to everlasting life. If they were fearful, they will awake to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. This is the beauty. This is Christ's beauty in us if we are courageous. If we have faith in the immutable promise and counsel of our God. They that shall be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And notice, they that have the courage to turn many to righteousness. Many who are going to be so filled with the hatred of the Jew that when they're invited to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, they just can't do it. From birth, they've been hating, 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 hating. And now they're invited, come and keep the feast with the Jews. They cannot do it. They will fight against the Jew. Their eyeballs will rot in the sockets. Their tongues will rot in the sockets. God himself will fight against them. We need to turn them to righteousness. We need to preach the gospel to them so that they don't fall into this category. That takes courage. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. It's it basically, let's make the decision now. We'll be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We will not bow. We will not break. We will not be fearful. We will be faithful. And when the beauty and the beast collide, the beast will see the beauty of Christ in us. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.